Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're studying chapter 16 in this first volume of this book series titled The Words of the Buddha. This book is titled Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. In chapter 16, I share how to dissolve the ego because the ego serves no purpose. There's this ego that's in the mind that causes us all kinds of complications. So today, in today's class, I'm going to be sharing with you those complications that the ego causes and helping you to understand what the ego is and how to actually eliminate it. So by understanding what the ego is, the complications that it causes and how to eliminate it, then you can move further on this path to enlightenment by dissolving the ego. The ego is something that takes quite a while to really work on and dissolve. You can't just dissolve it in a week or a month or even two months. It takes quite a while to work on it. So that's why here in this first book, this first volume, it's important that I introduce this and share the details with you to help you understand what it is, the complications you'll encounter, as well as how to actually eliminate it because you're going to need to do a lot of work in order to work on this. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there wasn't the word ego that existed. So the Buddha actually talked about it as two separate things. And it actually helps you to understand these two separate things because then with this deeper understanding, you can more target the ego in these two separate ways. We're actually combining these two things that the Buddha talked about into what we call today the ego. So I'm going to share all of this with you and, of course, give you opportunity to ask questions as we go. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can also electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like. So welcome. Pleased that all of you guys are here. Let's go ahead and move right into what it is that we have to discuss today. First, let's just talk about what the ego is. That's really important as we talk about all these different topics. You guys who've been studying with me for a while know I tend to kind of define things right up front to ensure that we're talking about the same thing when we use words like meditation or loving kindness or compassion or ego and things like this. So our ego is a collection of experiences from the past and our future expectations of ourselves, the things that we want to accomplish, who we think we are as a person, things like this. The ego is an accumulation of thoughts, ideas, and perceptions that we have of ourself, our self-image, and our self-identity, wanting to be perceived in the world a certain way through our self-image or our self-identity. What a perception is, is things that 
we have in terms of views or opinions, the way that we think about the world around us and how we fit into that world. And our self-image and our self-identity that we're trying to project in the world often is causing us a lot of problems. So as we talk about this, you see those problems so that then you can understand the problem and be motivated to actually eliminate these things. The ego also will contain arrogance or pride, this judgment, this measuring and comparing itself as being superior, meaning above people or below people. So this is what the ego is doing is it's always looking out, almost kind of like trying to protect itself. And where this is coming from is this is coming from our countless animal existences. When we were in a pack of wolves or a herd of elephants, we had an alpha male or an alpha female, or we had a matriarch of our elephant herd. And we needed these beings to help us survive. All the other members of our pack of wolves looked up to the alpha male and the alpha female in order to show us how to hunt, show us how to interact with each other and socialize, show us where the food and water is and all the other things that we needed as wolves. So this alpha male and alpha female were important. They protected the pack and ensured our survival. So we had a certain pecking order in the animal herd of elephants, for example. The matriarch showed us where the water and the food was. She helped us to fight and to care for this herd. But now that we're in this human existence, being above people and below people just causes us complications because human beings don't need that. What we really need is we just need to view everyone as equal. This is what will create the peacefulness, the calmness, the serenity and contentedness with joy in the mind. Because as long as we put ourselves above others, we're going to tend to talk down to them with our intentions, our speech and our actions. And this is going to cause us problems in our relationships. Or if we put ourselves below people, then our mind's going to be shaken up and uncalm. And our practice of how we interact with people, it can't be permanent. Because when we're putting ourselves above people and talking down, we're going to function in one way. And when we're feeling like we're below people, we're going to talk in a different way. And the mind almost short circuits. So by understanding the ego, as the Buddha explained it during his lifetime, you'll be able to understand it as these two separate things. So then you can target them individually. And by understanding it as these two separate things, then when they arise, you know exactly what it is, whether it's the personal existence view or whether it's conceit. Because as you guys may understand at this point is what you're working on in order to get to enlightenment is ultimately to eliminate all the 10 fetters. What a fetter is, is it's a shackle or a ball and chain around your ankle, essentially keeping you trapped or keeping you stuck. So these 10 fetters are keeping the mind trapped and stuck in the unenlightened state and keeping us trapped and stuck in this cycle of rebirth. So as long as these fetters exist in the mind, there's this pollution or these taints or these defilements that are keeping the mind struggling and having difficulties, continuing to experience discontentedness, therefore continuing to stay stuck in the cycle of rebirth because we haven't learned the wisdom of how to antidote these things. We haven't learned the wisdom of how to eliminate them. So in order to learn how to eliminate them, you first need to understand what they are, the complications that they're causing, and then understand the solutions. So that's what we're gonna be covering in today's class. 
So as I mentioned, the word ego didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. He described what we call the ego as personal existence view, which is the first fetter, and conceit, which is the eighth fetter. In order to get to even the first stage of enlightenment, an individual would need to eliminate the first, second, and third fetter. And typically when you start working on the fetters is after you've already understood the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, you're working to understand the three poisons, the natural law of gamma, you're working on understanding the seven factors of enlightenment, implementing extensive meditation training. This is like the foundation. And then as you start learning about the fetters, then you use the tools that the Buddha has already taught you as part of the Eightfold Path and other parts of the path in order to help you eliminate these fetters. So let's talk about this personal existence view first, and then we'll talk about conceit. I'll open up to questions on both of these, and then we'll actually go into talking about the solutions to these and how to eliminate them from the mind. If you remember back to when I've talked about the universal truth of non-self. I just introduced it to you early in this program and I said there's gonna be a later time where we're gonna talk about the universal truth of non-self because the universal truth of non-self is the solution to fixing personal existence view and eliminating it from the mind. What personal existence view is, and this is our opportunity to talk about it in detail, what personal existence view is, is it's how the mind holds on to this self-image, meaning this physical body, and or this self-identity, this mind, and thinking that this is who you are as a person. So this self-image is the physical body, you know, the clothes we wear, the way our hair looks, the way our skin might look, certain jewelry that we put on the body, certain makeup that we might use, certain scents or colognes, different things that we look at in terms of this physical body, we're trying to project a certain image in the unenlightened state into the world, and we would like to be perceived in a certain way. And we can only feel comfortable when we feel that our self-image is comfortable. So as we grow up, we might spend all this time in the mirror fixing our hair. We can't go outside until our hair is exactly perfect, or we put on certain clothes and we might put on one certain set of clothes, put on another one, put on another one until the mind is content and like, ah, that's what I would like to wear today. So this self-image, the mind is mistakenly understanding or falsely believing or having this misperception that this physical body is who you are as a person. So we become very worried and lots of anxiety to go out into the world because we feel like people are gonna judge us and judge who we are through the way that we look and we're not interested in being perceived in a negative way. So we spend all this time and the mind almost sometimes can become obsessed about how we look. And then as we age and we start maybe getting a little bit of fat around the stomach or the hips or what have you, or we get a few wrinkles or some gray hair, we can maybe get very discontent as a result of this. 
and this causes the mind to be discontent. So when we hear positive or agreeable things about our self-image, where someone's like, oh, you look so handsome or you look so beautiful. Oh, I love that shirt you're wearing. We get these pleasant feelings that arise in the mind, this happiness, this excitement or elation, because we're holding on to this self-image, thinking that this is who we are. And then when we hear these agreeable comments, then there's these pleasant feelings that arise. But because of the universal truth of impermanence, it's only a matter of time before somebody says something negative or disagreeable or disparaging or degrading about your self-image. And then when you hear those words and those comments, now you experience the painful feelings of anger and sadness and frustration, irritation, and all these other discontent feelings. So as long as we hold on to this self-image thinking this is who we are, and we have this personal existence view, this pollution of personal existence view, thinking this is who we are, then whenever we hear agreeable things, there's going to be pleasant feelings. And when we hear disagreeable things, there's going to be these painful feelings. So there's a solution to eliminating this so that our mind isn't going up and down and up and down, and it can reside in the middle, being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So that ultimately, if you hear something positive or agreeable, you might say, thank you, I appreciate your kind words, or whatever you might say to that person. But then once you've eradicated personal existence view, when somebody says something disparaging or negative or disagreeable, your mind won't experience the anger and the frustration because you didn't allow the mind to experience the pleasant feelings and arise all this happiness and excitement because of these compliments. You just humbly and peacefully maybe thank the person and acknowledge their comment without allowing the pleasant feelings to arise. Therefore, when somebody says something negative or disparaging or disagreeable, the mind just understands that's impermanence, that not everybody's going to speak to you in positive ways. And this person probably has craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind that they're lacking this wisdom and moral conduct and mental discipline. So they're choosing to speak to people in disparaging ways. But at that point, it won't shake up your mind anymore when you have eliminated personal existence view. So people can talk about this physical body and you might just choose to ignore them. You might choose to walk forward, but you're not gonna sit there and argue and get angry and frustrated about it because you realize that it's not possible for you to change this person. That's not your responsibility. And there's no reason to sit there and get angry about it because it's just impermanence. And because you didn't allow the mind to get these pleasant feelings, it's not going to experience these painful feelings. So we can cut off and let this go as we go forward in life. And then the other part of personal existence view is the self-identity. The mind has a certain self-identity in the unenlightened state when it has this pollution of personal existence view. It thinks certain things that are identifying in the mind as who you are as a person is who you are as a person. So maybe your career or occupation or certain qualities that you would like to project into the world or certain things that you think you are, like I am an American or I am a Buddhist teacher or I am a man, I am a 
father, I am a kind person, I am a wholesome person, or I am a police officer, I am a lawyer, I am a doctor, all this I am, I am, I am, the mind is holding on to this identity of who I think I am if there's personal existence view there. And once again, the same problem is if I hear a comment that's very positive and very agreeable and somebody says, oh, all Buddhist teachers are so kind and loving. They spend all this time sharing the teachings without any expectation of anything in return. They give their effort and energy and really help a lot of people. They're so wonderful. Oh, there's all these pleasant feelings because I am a Buddhist teacher. But then when you hear comments or you see things where someone's disparaging Buddhist teachers, then if there's this personal existence view and I am a Buddhist teacher, now I get angry and frustrated and irritated at that person. But when we eliminate this I am and then when we hear something positive, once again, we can just say, oh, thank you for your kind words. And when we see something negative or hear something negative, then we can just understand it for what it is, which is impermanence. So we have all this I am in the mind about our ethnicity, our nationality, our sexual orientation. Maybe if somebody identifies with a certain religion like Christian or Muslim or Buddhist, all these different labels that are out there in the world the mind tends to adopt these and think that this is who you are as a person. But all these things are constantly changing. So the Buddha is explaining through the universal truth of non-self that none of these things are you. That's not who you are as a person. These might be roles that you fulfill in terms of your self-identity. Or you might choose to put on certain clothing in order to be respectful when you go out into the world. But this isn't who you are as a person. This is just what you choose to wear. And all of these things are impermanent, so they can't be the permanent self. So now that you've learned this, remember I teach how to learn, reflect, and practice. So when you learn this, that this personal existence view is causing difficulties and causing complications and what it is, which is holding on to this self-image and self-identity, thinking this is who you are, now you can start reflecting. And you can start looking over your life and say, have I ever been in a situation where somebody said something about my self-image or self-identity and I either got these pleasant feelings and or these painful feelings at any given time. And if you see that that's true, that that's exactly what you've experienced, then you know that what I'm sharing with you is the truth. You've independently verified it. Another way for you to independently verify this is to understand that there is no permanent self is think about when you were a child and how you viewed yourself. And think about when you were in teenage years or early adult years and think about how you viewed yourself, your personality, your character and things like this. And then now think about your life now and how you think about yourself. Now, if you look at these different time frames in your life, your views of yourself and who you are have been constantly changing. Your characteristics, your personality, who you think you are as a person has been evolving and changing. And this helps you to independently verify through reflection that there is no permanent self. Because what can happen is somebody can feel like I've lost myself or I don't know who I am. I need to go find myself. 
Well, if you go on this journey to find yourself, you're never going to find it. You might come back with new activities or new hobbies or new thoughts or something like this, but you can't find yourself because there's no self there. Some of the words of the Buddha that he says is he says, there's no you there. So you can sometimes use this for reflection is you can ask yourself, you know, where is Tonka? Where is Bill? Where's Miranda? Where's Tony? You know, where is Iona? Where is Lindsay? Where is Aaron? Where's James? You can look at this and say, you know, point to James or point to Lindsay or point to Iona. And usually what people will do is either point to the chest or point to the head. And when you point, you know, look at what you're pointing at. You know, you're pointing at a shirt. You know, so if I took that shirt off and I'm like, where's David? Well, okay, point. Well, no, that's just skin. That's not actually David. That's just skin. So we take the skin off and point to David. Well, now if I point to the chest, it's just the ribs. And now if we get rid of the ribs and we say, where's David? And then we point again. That's just organs and fluid and tissue. None of that stuff is actually David. The problem in the unenlightened state is that we've been given this name, David or Iona or Lindsay or Tonka or Tony or whatever name we've been given. And now we start having this self-image and this self-identity that we start identifying with this label as this is who we are, is I am David or I am a Buddhist teacher or I am an American. And now when we hear agreeable or disagreeable things, then we experience this discontentedness. But when you reflect and you look, is this body permanent or impermanent? Well, the body is impermanent, so the body can't be the permanent self. Is the mind permanent or impermanent? Well, the mind is impermanent, so it can't be the permanent self. But the problem that the unenlightened mind is experiencing is it thinks that this body or mind is the self. It has this misperception, this misunderstanding, this confusion, this false belief. So now what the Buddha is explaining to you and helping you to gain this wisdom that you can then independently verify is that you can see that there is no self, that there's no you there. And then if you've learned and you've done the reflection, then the next thing that I'm going to talk about in a bit is how to practice to actually eliminate the personal existence view from the mind so that it will no longer hold on to this and be confused. Because as long as the mind is holding on to this personal existence view and this pollution is in there, it's this shackle. It's keeping you trapped. The mind isn't free. It's not liberated. Because every time you hear something agreeable, there's going to be these discontent feelings. And whenever you hear something disagreeable, there's going to be these discontent feelings that arise. So the mind isn't liberated. It's not free. It's burdened with carrying around this personal existence view, this pollution in the mind. So let me pause here before I talk about conceit and see what questions you guys have around personal existence view. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Uh, there are no questions on YouTube, sir. I'm not sure about Facebook. Uh, no questions on Facebook, sir, but I do have, have a question. Um, so we talked we, we, we talked about, or you talked about, I agree there's some kind of a, a being, the, the, the life force or whatever. Is that who we are? Is that the, the personal who that this 
this life force that uh, we're trying or I'm trying to 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 uh, become enlightened or to, to to be a better person or, or, or whatever that it is. So that being that's trying to become better, uh, is that who I am? Is that is it not what I'm trying to get to? Have you understood my question, sir? Yeah, there's no life force there. All we've got is we've got this physical body made up of these physical structures. We've got this mind or this consciousness, this awareness. And these two things have come together to create this unique existence, which the Buddha calls the person. So he talks about these three things, the body, the mind, and the person, which is the unique existence. But this isn't who we are. Our self-image and our self-identity isn't who we are as a person. The person description is just there to describe the unique existence of this body and mind coming together. The Buddha says there is no you. So training the mind to understand that there is no you, that there's just a physical body and there's just a mind that's come together, then you can eradicate this misunderstanding that there is a you here. There is no you here. Thank you, sir. Iona is asking, teacher, can you please clarify, is attachment or fear the reason why the mind is holding on to ego? So the ego is there because of this ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. Because of the unknowing of true reality, we don't understand what we don't understand. So we don't understand personal existence view in the unenlightened state. So the mind continues to form this view that there is a personal existence, that there is a self here. And this is because of our unknowing of true reality, our ignorance. And because of our ignorance, then the mind is craving and yearning and longing. It's looking to grasp onto something and hold onto something. The mind wants a you. It wants to identify a you. And the mind only feels comfortable when it can hold on and it can cling to something like this physical body and this mind. And it can consider that this is you. But then it's kind of a false belief. It thinks that it feels comfortable by grabbing onto this physical body and this mind. And by holding onto it, it thinks that that's the security that it needs to feel content. But then once again, when you hear something agreeable, these conditioned pleasant feelings arise. When you hear something disagreeable, these conditioned painful feelings arise. So the mind just keeps going up and down being discontent. So it's not until we let go of this clinging and holding on, thinking that this body or mind is who we are, that we eradicate the personal existence view, no longer viewing this body or this mind as who we are. Then when we hear agreeable or disagreeable things, then the mind isn't shaken up by it. I don't want to follow up, but I also wanted to ask teacher, David, is it true that everything we observe outside of us is a reflection of the self? Say, maybe I think someone is selfish or judging. Is it possible that I am the one to hold these qualities but trying to portray them on others as a way of deflecting responsibility? Thank you. Yes, we're going to be talking about that next, about what the ego does. So now I'm describing what it is. Then we're going to talk about what it's doing. And then we're going to talk about how to eliminate it. Thank you, teacher. Maybe that's all the questions at this time. Okay, I see Tonka has her hand up. I'm not sure if you can see that on your screen, Tony. She's in Zoom. 
your mute's on, but go ahead, Tonka, you can ask your question. Okay, thank you. Thank you, teacher David. I was wondering, I can see how we are not our body or the ideas of ourselves or the roles, but I was wondering if enlightened mind is permanent, like uh, once someone reaches enlightenment and it's not about ideas, it's just that pure mind. Yes. Can it be that, that, like, what is that? Because it's permanent, right? So it's not like a form or something. So like um, some spiritual teachers point to, to enlightened mind that that is not self, like personal self, but that is that uh, unity, that's uh, the existence. So I don't know if you could elaborate on that, like enlightened mind, not ideas, not perceptions, not thoughts, not physical body but ju just that pure mind. Sure, so I'll share a few things and then lead up to answering your question. So understanding that we are not this self-image, we are not this self-identity, we are not this physical body, we are not this mind, that's not to say that there isn't something here, right? There is, of course, a physical body that exists and there's a mind that exists. So there is something here that exists. It's just that this isn't who we are. So now when you understand that, that we aren't this body and we aren't this mind, now you can understand that what exists is this polluted mind that has the 10 fetters in it, these 10 pollutions of mind. And this is because we lack the wisdom in the unenlightened state of these 10 fetters and all these other teachings and therefore we haven't gained the wisdom to be able to eradicate them and eliminate them and because they're this shackle and this ball and chain keeping us trapped in this unenlightened state then we continue to be reborn and situations and experiences keep repeating over and over and over in our life and also over the course of multiple lives until we have learned the wisdom that we need to eradicate these poisons or these 10 fetters, these 10 pollutions, these 10 defilements, these taints. When we get the wisdom to eliminate these 10 fetters, now we've gained the wisdom that we needed. We've liberated the mind. The mind is now free. So we call this mind that is polluted with the 10 fetters, we call it a conditioned mind. The mind has these conditions that it has absorbed, these experiences, these situations, these pollutions of mind have, are deeply embedded in the mind, and an unenlightened being is unaware of what these 10 fetters are and how to eradicate them. So the unenlightened mind doesn't have the wisdom of what these are and how to eradicate them. So now, because these pollutions are there, we just keep experiencing the same problems over and over and over again. Once we start learning this path to enlightenment and we start understanding all the different teachings, including the 10 fetters, now not only do we understand what the problems are, but then we understand what the solutions are. And we start implementing those solutions and gradually we take this conditioned mind, this polluted mind, and we transform it into an unconditioned mind. So this conditioned mind it experiences feelings that arise, that change, and that fade away because these feelings are based on some condition. 
the condition of getting a new pair of shoes. Okay, I'm happy. I'm excited. Oh, somebody stole my shoes. Oh, I'm sad. I'm angry. Oh, I got a new job. I'm happy. I'm excited because the condition is I got a new job. Now I'm in that job for six months or a year and now I don't like it as much anymore. And now that happiness fades and I start to get angry and frustrated because I'm not getting along with the coworkers and I don't like the customers or whatever else is going on. So the mind is conditioned with these 10 fetters, which make it a struggle and difficult in life as long as there's these pollutions in mind. But when we understand these problems and we implement the solutions, now we purify the mind of those conditions. We purify the mind of the 10 fetters and we get to this unconditioned mind where now the mind is purified. It no longer has these pollutions there. So what an unconditioned mind is going to experience is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. There's no condition that arises the peacefulness. There's no condition that's changing it, and there's no condition that's going to make it fade away, like in the conditioned mind. Because the mind has been purified of all the conditions, now the mind is just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's unconditioned, no longer experiencing any discontentedness because the conditions that were causing the discontentedness have been eradicated. So now that unconditioned mind, you're going to experience that permanently, meaning for the rest of this life. The Buddha didn't declare once somebody attains enlightenment, what happens next. But I say that the enlightened mind is permanent, meaning for the rest of this life, you're going to experience peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's no longer going to be shaken up with any discontent feelings whatsoever. What happens to that mind after death it's not a declared teaching. We know that the body after death, it's going to fade away because it's impermanent, right? It's going to dissolve. It's going to break up. What happens to the mind after death of an enlightened being? The Buddha didn't declare what happens. Some people say that there's no existence. Once you attain enlightenment, then there's no longer existence of that mind. The Buddha actually didn't say that. He said there's no more existence in the cycle of rebirth, meaning you're no longer going to take a new existence or a new birth. That's true. You're out of the cycle of rebirth, so there's no longer going to be another human existence or animal existence or any of the other existences in any of the other five realms. Once the mind is enlightened, there's no more existence in the cycle of rebirth. But he didn't say that there's no existence whatsoever. He didn't declare what was next. So what happens to this mind once it's enlightened and permanently experiencing peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy is unknown. It's undeclared. It's not something that we share because if there is something next, then it's either going to be as good as what you're experiencing in the enlightened state or it's going to be better. And if we explained what that was, if the Buddha knew what that was during his lifetime, then that's just one more thing that the mind's going to crave and one more thing that it has to let go of in order to get to enlightenment. But the Buddha might not have understood what was next because he never experienced it. He never experienced being enlightened and dying. 
that was his life where he got enlightened and then he hadn't experienced death as an enlightened being yet so a buddha is only going to teach the truth and the way that they know the truth is based on what they've experienced so if the buddha had never experienced it then he's not going to share it because he's never actually experienced it so he doesn't know necessarily what actually does happen next but a buddha can understand some things even though they didn't experience them necessarily and he might have known what was next and then just chose not to share it because it's just one more thing for the unrelated mind to let go of so does this help you tonka to understand conditioned mind versus unconditioned mind and why i share that the unconditioned mind is experiencing this permanent peaceful calm serene content with joy Yes, I see. Because when you said permanent, I was thinking even after the death, you know. But now I understand when you said permanent mind, it means just for this life, this this existence. Yeah. Also, if you if you could just uh, elaborate a little bit, I heard you when you say uh, at the end of our life that mind separates from the body. Mm-hmm. So when you say separates, I understand that physical body. Uh, dies but then I'm under the impression that the mind cannot die so if you can say something about that please sure let me share that but let me share another aspect of this permanent enlightenment that I'm sharing with you so if somebody is unenlightened and their mind has these conditions of the 10 fetters they're going to continue to experience discontentedness and they're going to continue to experience rebirth which means they're going to continue to experience discontentedness in future rebirths as well once a being attains enlightenment in this life now they're going to be experiencing peaceful calm serene content with joy they're permanently experiencing that in the way i say it that way is because they're never going to go back to experiencing discontentedness again because there's no longer any existence because there's not going to be a future rebirth in the cycle of rebirth there's never going to be a time where someone once they get to enlightenment is going to go back to being discontent again so that's another reason why I explain it as permanent enlightenment as permanent it's permanent peaceful calm serene content with joy because once you attain enlightenment the mind's never going to go back to experiencing discontentedness ever again in this life and of course there is no future life or existence for an enlightened being in the cycle of rebirth but what happens next there's no declared teaching about that so the question that you had about the mind can you repeat that one more time so i can hear it and then respond to you I just heard you saying at the end of this life that mind separates from the body. So when you say separate, I'm under impression that mind continues and the body decays. Okay. So when we move from one life to the next, if there's rebirth, the new birth, the new existence is a completely new form for example if we're born into the animal realm or the human realm and it's a completely new mind the i remember your question now you said that the mind can't die this isn't true that there's this breakup of the body and the mind separates but if it is reborn it's not the mind being reborn it's better described as the cycle of new existence 
in the original source text, it's described as samsara. This is the Pali word that's used for the cycle of rebirth. It's called samsara. And we've translated that into English as the cycle of rebirth. And this gives the impression that something is being reborn. So maybe like the mind is moving from one existence to the other and it's the same mind. But this isn't actually true. It's actually the cycle of new existence that each existence is a completely new form and a completely new mind. The only thing that moves from one existence to the other is craving and residual memories. So this mind that we're referring to as Tonka it isn't going to become Bob and it's the same exact mind. It's two different minds, but the craving and residual memories that are in Tonka's mind, if there's rebirth, there's going to be this new existence of Bob and Bob's going to get the craving and residual memories of Tonka, whatever's remaining at the end of this life. So could my cravings, uh, like my cravings, now it's hard to imagine for me uh, how cravings uh, of this body mind, uh, how, how come they don't get mixed up? For example, uh, your okay, maybe you don't have any cravings, but say Miranda's cravings or Tony's cravings, uh, like how is it that they don't mix, get mixed up? in some way they actually you know, how is it related to 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 this body mind the next existence like i can't imagine how it's not being mixed up then it actually is getting mixed up because when for example tonka dies in her cravings and residual memories if there's rebirth and now you go to bob this is where bob can feel even though he has male sexual organs that he feels like a female in the mind because he has these residual memories of being tonka and it's not that there's anything wrong with that that's completely normal but using your language of being mixed up is that oftentimes when there's rebirth the mind can still think that we're the previous being, like multiple personality disorder. We call that a mental illness, but this is actually somebody who's recalling their past lives as all these different beings, and they're speaking as if they are those people. But in reality, in their mind, they're still just one person as a physical body and a mind, but their mind has these residual memories of their previous births, and this is why they're speaking as if they're different beings. So it is getting mixed up in the mind. And this is part of, as we, the mind awakens, if you start observing your past lives, you can actually get confused. And this is why it's important that you know that this is the truth so that you don't get confused when you start having residual memories, you just know what they are. We're talking about the cycle of rebirth and a lot of things that isn't necessarily yeah. related to this, but it's sorry, Im sorry. that's yeah, okay. <laughs> it's important to talk Thank about these things. Much. In chapter 20, we're going to be talking about the cycle of rebirth, so that's only about four weeks away. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank, thank, you. thank you, Teacher David. There's no more questions at this time, sir. Okay. So the next fetter to talk about or this next pollution of mine is conceit. This is another aspect of what we're calling the ego. Conceit is arrogance, pride, judging, measuring or comparing as being superior or inferior. 
as long as this pollution of mind is there, as long as this fetter, this taint, this defilement is there, then there's going to be this projection of arrogance or pride. The mind is going to be boastful. We're going to be talking down to people. We're going to be talking up to people. Our intention, speech, and actions are going to be unskillful as a result of this conceit. So when we're talking down to people, then it's going to affect our relationships, that people don't feel comfortable around us because we're putting ourselves up on a pedestal, we're being boastful, we're being prideful, and people don't enjoy being around that. And then we're going to be talking to those people in one way. And then when we feel like we're below people, we're putting other people above us, now our mind is shaken up. It's uncalm. It's unsteady because we're so nervous to be around this person who we admire so much. And now we're going to talk to this person in a different way. And we tend to talk based on our selfish desires when we have this conceit that, you know, if this person is rich and famous and well off in the neighborhood and well known, we might talk to them in one way and we have certain selfish desires of things we want from that person. But then when there's somebody who we feel is below us, we might talk to them in a completely different way and as we talk down to them, not only does that person experience that, but the people around them experience it, and we start creating unwholesome results for ourselves. Because of our lack of wisdom, we're making unwise decisions about our conduct and our way of interacting with people. So now when we talk down to people, we're creating unwholesome results for ourselves because of our unwise decisions and our lack of wisdom. And when we talk up to people and we lack confidence and we have this unsteadiness and unstable mind and our speech and our actions are functioning in a haphazard way. Now, once again, we're creating unwise decisions which lead to unwholesome results. And we might end up finding that when we go in for a job interview or uh, there's maybe a, a person in our neighborhood that has a certain project that they would like to involve us in. But because we look up to these people so high, when we go into the vice president of the company for a job interview, we're all shaken up because we perceive them as being above us. And now we can't get a job. We can't get promotions. We can't get increased income if that's what we need for our family. We look like we lack confidence and our mind is uncalm. So now people don't trust us because they see that we're not able to speak well. We lack this confidence and our mind is all shaken up. So by eliminating the conceit, then we can treat all beings equally. Because one of the other problems that happen is when we talk down to people in one way and we talk up to people in another way, our mind has to figure out the pecking order whenever we're around people. Is we have to figure out, am I above this person or am I below this person? Because I speak to people that I feel that are above me in one way and I speak to people that I feel are below me in another way. And now the mind almost short circuits trying to figure out this pecking order due to the conceit where what you're trying to get to is this permanent practice where you're practicing right view through right concentration, which includes right intention, right speech, and right action. And you can just treat all beings equally. If you speak to one group of people one way and you speak to another group of people another way, once again, your mind is burdened and doing all this work to try to figure out who's above me and who's below me. And then you have to adjust the way you talk to people based on whether you feel they're above you or below you. And then when you're a mixed company, 
where you have some people that you feel are above you and some people you feel are below you, now it's a real struggle of how to interact in this situation and the mind is all shaken up. So when you can eliminate the conceit, this pollution of mind, then you can just treat everybody equally and you can have intention, speech, and actions that are uniform and treating everyone the same. So this conceit is going to create struggles in your personal and professional relationships, the mind's going to be burdened, almost short-circuiting in certain situations and really burden you with all kinds of work and overactivity that the mind doesn't need to go through. When you just look at everybody as being equal and you can just have one permanent way of treating all beings. So let me pause and see what questions you guys have about conceit. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions you like in Zoom. Yes, sir, Miranda, just raise your hand. Yes, sir. Um, on the topic of conceit and judging and comparing others as above and below you, is the most impactful way of eliminating this conceit to simply cut off judging anyone as above or below us? And can this be done in the same way as cutting off unwholesome thoughts, like? noticing bodily sensations and cutting off this judging and comparing there, sir? That is one thing that we're going to do, but we're not talking about the solution yet, but that is one of the solutions. That is definitely one of the main things that a being is going to need to do in order to eliminate personal existence view in conceit. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Max has a question, sir. Good evening, sir. I had a question, I guess, um, like showing respect to our parents, uh, where the idea is to sit on the floor, um, whereas they would be maybe sitting on a couch or something like that. How is that different from, I mean, that's, I mean, physically sitting, you know, below them or whatever. That's just the difference there is just showing a sign of respect or can you explain that? Let's talk about the solutions in a little bit. I would like to make sure that everybody's understanding the problem first and what we're experiencing when there is personal existence view and conceit. And then once we get that really well understood, then we can talk about the solutions. Yes, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Is there any there question? No okay, there's no more questions. Okay. I was going to ask, is there... No questions on Facebook or YouTube either. Okay, so if anybody has any questions on what these things are, feel free to bring those up because there's a little bit more here that I'm going to explain about how these cause problems in the mind. So let's talk about that next. And again, if you're needing help to understand what personal existence view or conceit is, feel free to bring those up as questions. And then after this, we'll talk about the solutions. So now that you're understanding that personal existence view and conceit is what we're calling the ego, then here's some more information about what the ego is doing because it stands in the way of seeing true reality and being able to have loving kindness and compassion with all beings. The ego stands in the way of being able to practice true love. Because remember, we talked about the Brahma Viharas two weeks ago about loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness is having a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful. And then compassion is the concern for the misfortune of others. When this ego, this arrogance and pride, this measuring and comparing, this wanting 
looking to project a certain image in the world through our personal existence view, that's going to stand in the way of seeing true reality and seeing how other people truly are. It's going to stand in the way of loving people as they are. Because what the mind's going to end up doing is it's oftentimes going to project its own unwholesome qualities onto other people. And then it's going to read that reflection coming from the other person as coming from them when in reality it's coming from your own mind. It's kind of like looking out at the world through a dirty window. If you look out through a dirty window at the world, the world looks very dirty. And if you have this pollution of mind of personal existence view and conceit, then you're looking through that pollution at other people. And you're seeing your own unwholesome qualities, but you're thinking it's coming from other people. And you're reading your own unwholesome qualities as from somebody else. Let me give you an example of this. If you're in a business meeting and somebody walks in and they have some amazing clothes, they have their hair really beautiful, they have some perfume or cologne or jewelry or whatever it is, they're just a really beautiful or handsome individual. And they walk in and they sit down and if we see that person come in, sometimes what the mind might do is be like, oh, look at him or oh, look at her trying to look so beautiful. Oh, they're just trying to show off to everybody. Right away, the mind is judging that person, thinking that they're trying to look so beautiful or so handsome. But in reality, in true reality, all that's happened is somebody just walked into the room. What's really going on is the individual's mind wants to look beautiful. This individual who you are, your mind is looking at this other person thinking they're trying to look so beautiful. They're trying to look so handsome because you look at them and you think they're beautiful or you think they're handsome and you're thinking, oh, look at them. They're trying to show off. They think that they're so beautiful or they think they're so handsome. But in reality, it's your own ego that's wanting everyone else to perceive you that way. So when you see somebody walk in that's handsome or beautiful, you think that what they're trying to do is look handsome and beautiful and they're trying to show off. When in reality, it's your own unwholesome quality of personal existence view and conceit that's actually causing that to occur. You can't love this person as they are because you've got this personal existence view and conceit that's projecting itself onto this person and thinking that they're the ones who are trying to show off when in reality all they did is just walked in the room. They just happened to have on nice clothes. They just happened to look very beautiful or very handsome. They didn't cause any problems. They just walked into the room. It's the first time you've ever met them. But yet the mind casts these unwholesome qualities that's in your own mind onto this person and thinking that it's them that is unwholesome when in reality it's your own mind that is unwholesome. You're looking out at the world through this dirty window. So as long as you have this dirty window, this pollution of personal existence view and conceit, then you're going to struggle to love people as they are. And now in this meeting, you think this person is showing off. You think that this person wants to be viewed as beautiful or handsome. And now your intention, speech, and actions become unskillful. And you can't just talk to this person in a, a peaceful and harmonious way, in a loving way, because you're projecting your own unwholesome qualities onto this person. And this is coming from the judgment of how the mind is judging other people, attempting to determine what is right or wrong for another person while placing yourself 
above others or below others with this arrogance and this pride, this ego, comparing yourself as being superior or inferior and attempting to determine what is wholesome and unwholesome or good or bad for other people. This conceit is causing the mind to judge others because the mind wants to be above others the mind then has to judge others to determine if you're above them or below them. So the mind is kind of stuck in this loop with the conceit of trying to constantly find this pecking order. Am I above this person or am I below this person? Well, now let me judge this person as being unwholesome because if I can judge them as being unwholesome and they're wrong, then I can feel like I'm wholesome and I'm great and I'm wonderful because that's what the ego wants to do. The ego wants to boast and be above everybody typically, but it also sometimes wants to be below people and it perceives itself as being below. So by the mind having this conceit, it now wants to judge others and it oftentimes tries to determine that the other person is wrong or the other person is bad or the other person is unwholesome because that makes the ego feel good because now you can be above this person and you can feel like you're so much better than them, right? This is how the unenlightened mind functions because when there's conceit, then there's going to be judgment and you're judging yourself versus other people. And you might even talk to yourself in negative in disparaging ways. There's this inner dialogue where the mind is talking to itself in these negative and disparaging ways. And then our perceptions start to come in and we start having these beliefs and opinions based on how things seem rather than seeing true reality. So the mind's own ego looks at situations through this dirty window and it perceives things to be in a certain way based on its beliefs and its opinions when in reality things aren't truly that way at all. It's this pollution in the mind causing this dirty window that now when you're looking out at the world you're seeing things that aren't true reality. You're viewing the world through this conceit and through this personal existence view wanting to be above people or in some cases putting yourself below people rather than just seeing everybody as equal. And the unenlightened mind, because of this conceit, not only does it project unwholesome qualities onto others, but it oftentimes projects wholesome qualities onto others. Certain wholesome qualities that you have in your mind, things that you're doing well, you might project this onto others, craving them or expecting them to do the same things as you. So if you're a loving and kind person uh, and you have loving kindness and compassion or you're a generous person and you see that other people aren't that way, now there's this craving of permanence, wanting everybody to be loving, wanting everybody, expecting everybody to be kind, craving for everyone to be generous and speak polite, this isn't possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. It would be wonderful if everyone in the world was polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. But because of the universal truth of impermanence, it's not possible for that to occur. There's craving anger and ignorance in all these different beings' mind, so they're not going to function in a way that is necessarily completely wholesome. The only person that's going to be able to do that is an enlightened being. An enlightened being isn't going to have any unwholesome qualities in their mind whatsoever. So they're going to function in all respects through wholesomeness. 
So when the mind has this conceit in there, it's going to judge and measure and compare others. It's going to have these perceptions, these beliefs and opinions of how things are. You're going to have certain wholesome qualities that you see in your mind. And you're going to crave for other people to do those same things. And when they're not doing those same things, you're going to be frustrated and irritated because the mind wants everybody to be the same as you. Because this arrogance and pride is in there thinking that we're so great. Look at all these wholesome qualities that we're practicing. And now I want everyone else to be exactly the same way. So there's this unwholesome qualities that get projected and there's these wholesome qualities that get projected rather than just loving beings as they are through seeing true reality and just understanding that beings are struggling and having difficulties in the world just like you. Instead, this arrogance and pride is trying to put itself above people and sometimes below people. So this is just causing all kinds of complications in relationships that we can't just love people as they are. We can't have harmonious relationships in all situations. Maybe in some situations you can, but not in all situations. An enlightened being is going to be able to have a a harmonious relationship in all situations. Now, the other person might not be able or capable of having a harmonious relationship with you, but as an enlightened being, you're capable of having a harmonious relationship with everybody. You wouldn't have a contentious relationship with anybody. Your own mind would be purified of all the unwholesome conditions that's hindering the mind from having this loving and kind relationship with others. But if you have pollution in mind, you're going to push people away. Oh, they're unwholesome. I don't want to talk to them. They don't talk to me properly. Or, oh, they're not doing these wholesome things. They should do these wholesome things the same as me. And the mind might even try to control other people in certain situations. So what you are potentially coming to as I talk about this more and more is that the ego serves no purpose. There's just no purpose to this ego. It's like a bad tenant that's rented your house and never pays any rent. There's no benefit that's coming to you whatsoever. This bad tenant just keeps staying at your house, keeps eating all your food, keeps using the bathroom, doesn't clean up after themselves. They're just causing all this havoc in the house, throwing parties all the time, you know, just wrecking your house. And you keep trying to evict this tenant out of the house because it's not giving you any benefit. But yet every time you try to convince this tenant to leave, they kind of find a reason to stick around. So the ego is kind of the same way as every time you think that you've got this ego and it's starting to get out of the mind and you're maybe evicting it, it finds a way to stick around longer. And one of the tricky things that the ego does is it tries to convince you that you're more enlightened than you really are. You might think you're in the first stage or second stage or third stage. You might even think that you're enlightened. You might think you're in the jhanas, for example. The ego is in there trying to convince you that you're progressing so well on this path. And look how peaceful your mind's becoming. Look at all this wisdom that you have about the path to enlightenment. And the mind can become boastful and thinking that you're further along on the path than you really are. And this is the ego's way of sticking around longer and longer and longer. So what we need to do is we need to actually evict this ego out of the mind. We need to eradicate personal existence view, no longer viewing this physical body or mind as who you are. And we need to get rid of this conceit, this arrogance, this pride, this measuring and comparing 
putting ourselves above and below others. Because as long as this is in there, it's just going to keep causing problem after problem after problem in our personal and professional relationships. So the way that we solve this is through eliminating personal existence view. And I'm going to share some things with you here with personal existence view and with conceit that you can implement in your practice to start to eliminate this at the point in time that you're ready to do this. Now might not be the time that you're ready to do this because typically what you're doing is you're working on those foundational teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, all the others that I talk about, extensive meditation training, kind of preparing the mind to be ready to release the personal existence view and the conceit. So now may or may not be the right time, depending on where you are in your practice. But when you're ready to start focusing on this and you feel like you've got the Eightfold Path down fairly well, some things that you can do is have multiple conversations with a teacher because you're going to need to hear and understand and talk and reflect and discuss personal existence view over multiple conversations to fully understand it and to understand the solutions. So once you've had enough discussions and you sought guidance with a teacher over multiple sessions, one of the things that I will typically recommend is to receive guidance on the meditation to realize non-self. This is in chapter 11 of volume one. I explain it there. But if you're just starting off on the path in the last three to six months, you can't just run off and go do that meditation and realize non-self. There's a lot of preparatory work that you need to do before the mind's ready to start this meditation. And one of the things is learning what personal existence view is and also getting all those foundational teachings underway so that you've got a nice foundation under you. So this meditation to realize non-self is something that we can use to help the mind understand that this body in this mind is not who you are as a person. Another thing you can do is you can change the language that you use in order to disassociate the mind with the word my or mine. In connection to your relationships, certain material objects or possessions, and various life situations. The way that you speak and the way that you talk is the way that the mind thinks. So if we say this is my computer, these are my clothes, this is my car, this is my house, these are my kids, then the mind's holding on and taking ownership and this is mine, 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 mine. And what you need to start working on when you're ready to eliminate personal existence view is to release these from the mind no longer holding on to them and identifying with them as who you are as a person. So if it's my house, now I perceive this as part of my self-image and my self-identity. And now because it's mine, 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 the mind is holding on to it. So instead of calling it my house, I might say, you know, this is where I live or I'm going to the place where I live. Or instead of saying this is my car, I might say this is the car or instead of this is my phone I might say this is the phone or instead of my children right you're, you're probably not going to say these are the kids that I you know conceived and gave birth to or, or participated in giving birth to or what have you but sometimes you might need to say certain words and say this is my son Bailan or I might say this is Bailan 
right? Instead of my son Bailan, I might say this is Bailan, right? So sometimes it becomes easier in certain relationships and certain conversations to say this is my son Bailan, but the mind has to deeply understand he's not mine. He doesn't belong to me. He's his own unique being and he makes his own unique decisions. I guide him, I support him, I encourage him, I try to show him wise decisions. And where it's possible, you know, he makes his own decisions, but in certain situations, our job is to restrain our child from evil. So if we see that he's gonna make a very unwise decision, I need to be able to step in and, and restrain him from that because he's only about 10 years old. But the mind, even in that situation where I'm teaching him and I'm guiding him, I don't see him as mine, that he belongs to me, or this motorbike that I'm driving, it doesn't belong to me. I'm using it for now, but this motorbike is impermanent. Or these clothes, I'm using them for now, but they don't belong to me, they're not mine. So rewiring the mind to use different language for about six months or a year can really help you to now get to a point where you no longer are finding this self-image and self-identity in these various relationships and objects and life situations that you disassociate the mind with all of these things as being mine, 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 mine. You can work on developing the perception of impermanence through deep observation in the world. So if you haven't done this yet, where you've taken the universal truth of impermanence and deeply soaked it into the mind, this is good for all aspects of the path, but it also helps you here with personal existence view. The way that you do this is you walk around for a few days or a few weeks or whatever you need, and you observe impermanence everywhere you go. Look at the trees. There's green leaves on the trees and there's brown leaves on the ground. That's impermanence. You're walking down the street. You see the sidewalk is really nice and then you see a crack. That's impermanence. It's sunny out and then there's a cloud that blocks the sun. That's impermanence. The sun can't be out permanently. You see a fence that has faded paint. At one time that fence had bright, vibrant paint, but now it's faded because of impermanence. You start seeing all this impermanence all around you. You have a certain opinion, but somebody else disagrees with your opinion. That's impermanence. It's not possible for people to permanently agree with you. There's one group of people that absolutely love you and think you're the best thing in the world. And then there's another group of people that hate you. This is impermanence. It's not possible for everyone in the world to love you because of the universal truth of impermanence. So the more you observe in the world this universal truth of impermanence and deeply soak it into the mind, then the mind starts to understand that this physical body is impermanent it can't be the permanent self and clinging to this self-image of who the mind thinks it is, it's unfruitful, it's unbeneficial. Or this self-identity that's in the mind. I'm not gonna permanently be a police officer or permanently be a lawyer, right? This is where people have trouble when they retire. When they retire, they potentially can have difficulties because they were identifying with being a lawyer or a doctor, or if they change jobs from one job to the other. If the mind has personal existence view, this self-identity, the mind can have all kinds of problems when you have to change jobs or you retire, you feel like you've kind of lost a piece of yourself. 
but that's not who you are. That's not the self. So if you see this as impermanence, that, okay, today I'm a food server, tomorrow I'm helping people move and I'm stacking boxes in a truck. But this job, this isn't who I am. This isn't my identity. This is just impermanence. I'm not going to allow the mind to cling to this job thinking this is who I am. I'm going to deeply soak into the mind this impermanence and understand that none of these things are me. It's not who I am as a person. So developing this perception of impermanence through deep observation in the world of all these impermanent things around you. When Wi-Fi is not working, when your cell phone's not working, one person tells you one thing, another person tells you something different, this is all impermanence. You have a certain object and then you lose it or misplace it, this is all impermanence. The next one is wearing simple clothes and making your appearance simple in terms of clothing, jewelry, makeup, scents, facial hair, and head hair. Let me explain this. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, of course, he just wore basic robes and kind of rag robes. And this is the way that he trained his mind to not have personal existence view and to not have conceit. These are some of the ways that he did that. We also, you know, shave hair and things like this, but not everybody has to necessarily do that. You don't have to put on a robe. You don't necessarily have to shave your hair. You can actually wear simple clothing or you can take the existing wardrobe that you have and set it up in a way that you're not giving the mind a choice to project the self-image in the world. So you could go out and just buy simple clothes. Like I have all these simple clothes. They're exactly the same. I just pick the one off the top. They're exactly the same. I wear exactly the same clothes every day in terms of the outer clothes. And this helped to train the mind to let go of this personal existence view. But if you're not interested in replacing your wardrobe with just all simple clothes, you can take your existing wardrobe and you can stack up your shirts and you can stack up your pants or whatever you have, shorts. And then when you get dressed in the morning, you can just pick off the top and just wear whatever you wear. Because what the unenlightened mind does when it has personal existence view is it wants to look through the closet. It wants to look at all the shirts, all the colors. You want to think about who are you meeting today? Who are you going to see? What situations are you going to be in? And then there's a certain self-image that you want to project in the world and you're going to grab whatever shirt or whatever pants meets to your comfort level and then you feel comfortable to project a certain image in the world. Well, if you just stack up your clothes and you just pick off the top each day, you're not giving the mind the opportunity to choose. So the person in this situation is setting up the clothes in such a way that the mind doesn't get a choice of how the body's going to look today. So you just pick it off the top and you just wear whatever shirt and pants that is there. And that can be a way to help you eliminate this personal existence view. If you eliminate jewelry like rings and earrings and any kind of necklaces or makeup and scents and things like this, you can do this as well. You can do this for an extended period of time, six months or a year or so. And then if you choose to go back to those things and use those things in the future, you can. But what you might decide to do is kind of shrink your practice down where you're trying to ensure that the mind isn't projecting this certain self-image 
in the world by eliminating the jewelry, by eliminating the makeup or the scents like cologne and perfumes. And if you decide to shave your facial hair or head hair as a male or a woman, you can do that too. That's a step that some people choose to take. And as you do that for an extended period of time and you start observing that you don't necessarily feel comfortable walking out of the house without your jewelry or without the makeup or without cologne or perfume. That's because of personal existence view. The mind isn't comfortable to go outside because it wants to hold on to this jewelry or makeup or cologne or perfume or certain clothing or certain way that you want the hair to look. So if you eradicate these things from your practice for an extended period of time and you train the mind to go outside and maintain its peacefulness, its calmness, its serenity, its contentedness, and its joy, despite not wearing jewelry, despite not wearing makeup, despite not wearing scents or having this hair, despite just wearing simple clothing or whatever clothing you picked off the top of your pile, you can still go out into the world and be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's going to take you a few weeks or a few months to accomplish that, but then eventually you'll get to the point where you can see like, yeah, I can go outside wearing anything and I can be just as peaceful and just as joyful as I was at any other time. And now I can actually be more peaceful and more joyful because my mind isn't attached to any particular clothes or jewelry or makeup or anything else. And then after six months or a year, when you feel like this has been fully eradicated because you've experienced enough situations, if you choose to start wearing your wedding ring or wearing makeup in certain situations or wearing these other things, or you choose to grow your hair back, then so be it. But at least you go this extended period of time where you've put the mind in situations where it would have otherwise been uncomfortable, but you've trained the mind to be comfortable in those situations. So that's that suggestion there, and that can be really, really helpful for you. And then the one that Miranda was bringing up as it relates to personal existence view is that wherever you see that the mind is interested in projecting this self-image or this self-identity, then you apply right effort to cut that off and let it go. Remember the Eightfold Path, right mindfulness is having awareness of mind having awareness of the mind. So wherever you're aware that this self-image is arising and it's wanting these agreeable compliments and there's these pleasant feelings coming into the mind because of the agreeable compliments, you cut that off and let it go. That's right effort. And then you have this right mindfulness where you're aware of this self-image or self-identity and someone says something disagreeable and you feel this anger arising and you feel the bodily sensations or you feel the bodily sensations associated with frustration or anything else. Then you apply right effort and you cut that off and let it go. And you experience enough of these situations that eventually you get to the point where self-image and self-identity no longer arises in the mind. And you're going to need to see guidance with the teacher over multiple sessions in order to accomplish this. It's not something that you can just snap your fingers and immediately eradicate from the mind. It's going to take some time. So this can be an introduction and a first start to help you understand it. And then gradually over time, as you implement these things, then you'll see that the personal existence view will diminish more and more to the point where the Buddha explains that you obliterate it or you destroy it. You cut it off at the stump and you uproot it out of the mind so that it no longer exists. He talks about obliterating it.
So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about eliminating and dissolving the ego as it relates to personal existence view. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, sir, Miranda has a question. Thank you, Tom. Uh, first of all, thank you for answering the question from before, sir. And then while we're working on this, dissolving ego and eliminating judging and comparing, is there a describable dis difference between discernment and judgment? If we see someone acting in a harmful way, for instance, maybe in their speech or their actions, and we simply know that that speech or those actions are harmful, but we don't look at that person as unwholesome. Is that discernment or should we not be doing that either? I think. Yes. So there's discernment, which is wise decision making. And then there's judgment. What judgment is, is deeming other people as being unwholesome or wholesome and you know, if they're unwholesome, you're going to push them away. And if they're wholesome, maybe you feel like you want to be close to them and you want something from them. There's some kind of desire in the mind that you want. So there's this measuring and comparing, putting yourself above and below others based on judging them as being wholesome or unwholesome. This is a unwholesome quality of mind that if you're judging others, you're only harming your own mind because it hinders you from being able to have loving kindness and compassion and true love for this being because the mind is constantly looking, am I above this person or below this person? This is judgment, trying to declare and determine what is wholesome and unwholesome for other people. Then there's discernment. There's discernment where you're around somebody, you see they're using a lot of profanity, you see that they're into drugs or alcohol, you know, they talk about sexual misconduct and all kinds of things like this. You notice that they're lying or stealing or other things like this. And out of discernment, you have compassion for this being, you have loving kindness for this being, but because of discernment, you just make a wise decision not to be with this person and not to associate with this person. Not because you look down on them, not because you're determining that they are unwholesome as an unwholesome person, but you just disagree with their intentions, their speech, and their actions, perhaps. You disagree with how they're functioning in terms of you see that they're making unwise decisions. Maybe they're stealing, they're having sexual misconduct, they're lying, they're taking substances that cause heedlessness. And with wise decision-making, you know if you are close with this person, their decisions are going to affect you. It's your decision to be their friend. That's the decision that's affecting you. But their decisions of partaking in all these unwholesome things is going to lead to results because you're choosing to associate with them. So we can have discernment and choose to associate with certain people and not associate with certain people based on wise decision making. But it's important that you're not doing that based on your ego and based on declaring that someone else is unwholesome. If you're declaring someone else is unwholesome and you're pushing them away or your ego, you want to be above this person and you're pushing them away because they don't want to be below you, then this is going to be aversion and where you're avoiding 
uncomfortable situations because your mind is uncomfortable in this situation you're pushing them away because you're uncomfortable with this person you're pushing them away that's aversion because the mind is uncomfortable and it thinks that if it pushes this person away it solves the problem but it doesn't solve the problem because it's your own craving desire attachment so an enlightened being can be comfortable around all beings even if someone is using drugs or alcohol even if somebody's having sexual misconduct or they're lying or cheating an enlightened being can still be comfortable around them they might choose to not associate with this person and kind of move on but they can maintain their peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy around somebody who's doing something unwholesome. So this is the difference between discernment and judgment. Judgment, you're gonna wanna put yourself above or below others and deem them as being unwholesome perhaps. Where discernment, you're just making a wise decision based on seeing certain decisions that they're making and realizing it would be unwise for you to be around and associate with somebody who's making decisions based on things like the five precepts and stuff like that. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Yes, sir. I have a question for you. You use an example of somebody you're in a meeting and somebody comes in, they're well-dressed and they look good and so on and so forth. And you uh, or, or I uh, uh, start saying to myself that, that, uh, that uh, you know, aren't they trying to look, with, to look smart or whatever? What would be the enlightened way to handle that situation when somebody comes in uh, uh, looking good type, for example. Just smile. Welcome. How are you? Nice to meet you, right? Because it's just a new person that's walked in. There's no need to cast judgment on this person as being good or bad. They just walked in as a new person. And this is an opportunity for you to reach out to a new being that you've never met before and start building this harmonious relationship. So just smile, be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. Say hello, you know, whatever you're going to do. Shake their hand, why them, whatever you're going to do. But as soon as you see the mind starting to judge them, that's what you would like to cut off and let go of and realize that that's your own unwholesome qualities that are starting to arise in the mind and you're not interested in that hindering you or blocking you and having this relationship. So you'd like to cut that off and let it go. Just smile, say hello, be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. So for the mind to say, what is it? don't they look nice or don't they look not nice is not, so, so your mind shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't uh, make any judgment like the, or just, just don't they look nice in a, in a, in a, in a polite way that's unscopeful. You can compliment somebody, you know, if somebody walks in, it's like, oh, I really like your hair. That's so beautiful. There's no problem with you complimenting people. If their mind chooses to arise pleasant feelings as a result of your compliment, then that's up to them. That's their practice. But there's no harm in complimenting an individual. If you become over complimentary, this is where their ego can arise, right? And then it causes problems in the relationship. So what you might choose to do is you might choose to compliment people, but you might kind of temper that a bit as you're first getting to know somebody. Because if somebody has a whole lot of ego already and you start complimenting them, then it's going to make their ego rise up even more. And now they're going to have difficulties having a relationship with you because they're going to be trying to put themselves above you. So 
one of the things you learn as you're eradicating all these pollutions from your own mind and how you function in the world with all of these pollutions, you'll understand how other people function and you might choose to not compliment someone right away when you first meet them, but there's no harm in complimenting people, you know, letting them know that you maybe appreciate something they've done or you might compliment their appearance or something like that. There's no harm in that, but you just would like to be observant of another person's mind and ensure that you're not contributing to their ego. And this is going to perhaps cause difficulties in them being able to have a, a nice relationship with you and a harmonious relationship with you. Thank you, sir. Miranda has her hand raised. Yes, thank you, Tony. As you were asking that question, something else came to the mind. Though we are working on dissolving the ego and eliminating it, while we're doing that before it's done, can we use part of this, part of the ego, almost as a tool to identify our own cravings, desires, and attachments since this ego kind of works as a mirror where we see, we perceive things in others that are actually in our own mind? Yes, if you get to the point where you're really skillful and you see somebody just walked in and you're like, oh, look at him trying to show off. He looks so handsome wearing all those nice clothes. You're like, hold on a second. That's me. That's not him. That's me saying that. That's my craving. That's my desire. You know, what are you doing? You know, yeah, if you can do that, right? Like you have to be able to build that ability to be able to do that. You have to be honest and objective with yourself. But oftentimes when the ego is arising, it just wants to puff you up. But maybe five minutes later, 10 minutes later, you can come to that realization through your reflection. And that can be insightful for you to see some of your own cravings, some of your own self-image and self-identity that you're trying to project in the world. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, Tonka has a question, sir. I was wondering if it would be useful to separate actions uh, from people. For example, we can recognize that uh, someone may behave in a unwholesome way, but that's not who they are. Also, in the past, if I look back, like I can feel guilty for certain things that I did, but then understanding that I did it from not knowing, from that ignorance, standpoint uh i am i think it's much healthier uh to to look at that yes i made a mistake but that's not that i'm unwholesome i'm a bad person the action was bad and uh, unwholesome and at the same time when we see people behaving in an unwholesome way we kind of separate that action from who they are and then we can have compassion for that person knowing or they are doing that from craving and ignorance instead of identify them with what they are what they are doing is it a useful way to to do that yes this is how an enlightened being thinks is that they don't think of the person as being unwholesome because 
you would like to have loving kindness and compassion and have this true love for the person. So we might disagree with the person's intention, speech, or actions and how they're choosing, what their choices are. We might disagree with those things and those things might be unwholesome, but we don't declare that the person is unwholesome. We just look at the intention, speech, and actions or our own intention, speech, and actions. This is where you can relieve yourself of any guilt or shame about things that you've done in the past is realize that, okay, I made those choices before, but yes, that was because of lack of wisdom. It was our ignorance and unknowing of true reality. But those choices and decisions that I made in the past, that's not who I am as a person. So you separate the person from the choices and decisions. These aren't the same thing. But when there's personal existence view in the mind, this is part of the problem. This is where part of that guilt and shame comes from, is we think that our choices and decisions are who we are as a person. And then we start feeling guilty and shameful. So when you can separate this out, this is where not only for yourself can you become more peaceful and joyful and the mind can be at ease, but if you have children or you have employees or coworkers, you can love the person and remain at ease and remain peaceful and be calm around them, but you just might disagree with their choices that they're making in the world. And as you know, because of the universal truth of impermanence, you're never going to agree with somebody else's decisions 100% of the time. It's not possible for you to do that. So we separate the choices and decisions, which are involving the intention, speech, and actions from the person. That way you can just love all beings unconditionally, even though you might disagree with their intention, speech, and actions and the choices they're making. Yeah, so I think it's important to understand that we can love people, but not necessarily condone everything that they are doing. Well, when you think about condoning something, this is a judgment. I'm going to judge whether I condone this or not, right? So don't think about that word. Like it's oh, not about because because uh, if you're condoning something, that means there's a certain expectation that the mind has that somebody will do something, and then when they don't do it that way, now I'm going to condone it, right? So just think of it as that you just don't agree with the intention, speech, or actions, or you just don't agree with the choices and decisions. That doesn't mean they're wrong and you're right. Mm -hmm. That's what the ego wants to do is I'm right. They're wrong. You know, mm -hmm. I don't agree with their decisions. I'm going to condone them, right? Instead, just look at it as like, all right, that's what they're choosing to do. I wouldn't choose to do that. But in that thought, you're not thinking that I'm right and they're wrong. You're just saying, okay, that's not something that I would choose to do. Or just to see this is harmful, so it would be wise to stay away from that. Yeah, like by thinking of this isn't something I would choose to do because you're practicing harmlessness. If somebody else is choosing to do that, then that's their choice. They're going to experience the results of those decisions. And as long as you aren't involved in that, then it's not going to affect you. Thank you. You're welcome. Rick has his hand up. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, I was just wondering, you, you often talk about the meditation to realize non-self. I don't recall you actually teaching it in the class. I was wondering if you've ever done that. And if not, what is the reason that you choose not to teach that particular meditation? 
Okay, sure. So I haven't taught it in any classes yet. I don't think there might have been one class that I've taught it. We were planning to teach it at the retreat in the USA, but by Friday, you guys were all tired. So you guys chose not to do it. I gave you guys the choice. Do you, would you like to do this meditation or should we just end here? And you guys were like, oh, let's just end here. We've learned a lot. So I have no problems with teaching it. It's in chapter 11 of volume one. What I've done is I've taught it to people privately when they're having enough conversations and they're asking me questions about it when it's clear that they're interested in needing this meditation then i've taught it to some people individually in a private setting but it's essentially done exactly the same way as the loving kindness meditation with affirmations and you'll see them in chapter 11 so if you've learned loving kindness meditation with me you do it exactly the same way but instead of the loving kindness affirmations you use the affirmations that are in chapter 11 and if you need help on a personal basis i can help you with it if we do a retreat at some point where maybe we're focusing on the first stage of enlightenment and eradicating personal existence view i would make sure that i teach this meditation in that particular retreat or if you guys would like to have a special class where i just do this one we could do that because it's essentially the same thing as loving kindness just with different affirmations thank you sir you're welcome there are no more questions for this time sir all right, so let's move on and look at conceit and things that we can do in order to eradicate conceit. Some of these things might sound a little bit odd to you if you haven't been involved in Buddhist teachings or in cultures where they do have Buddhist teachings. But as I explain them to you, it will help you to understand why these things are helpful and why they work. The first one is saying thank you often, right? All of these are going to accumulate into a practice where you've eliminated any kind of arrogance or pride and you're practicing being humble. So sometimes we don't say thank you if we're having conceit. We might think that we deserve what's happening for us. But by saying thank you and please, and as you guys have been practicing, you know, sir and ma'am and thank you, sir, no ma'am, no sir, all these kind of things practice politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect towards other people. And this is a way of just viewing everybody as equal. Whereas if we think we're above people, we might not be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to others because we feel that others should be respectful to us, but we don't have to be respectful to them. But that's not how any of this works. Because of the natural law of gamma, if you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to others, other people will be polite, kind, friendly, respectful to you. So by improving your language and being polite, kind, friendly, respectful, using the word thank you often, you'll see that this will help to eradicate some conceit. The next thing, which is a really easy thing to implement and do, but it's hugely impactful to your practice, is to sleep on a low position on the floor. That can mean just getting rid of your frame and your box spring, if you have one of those, and just putting your mattress flat on the floor. Going down into bed and getting up out of bed over a long-term consistent period of time is very impactful to eliminate any kind of arrogance or conceit in the mind. Here in Thailand, if you go furniture shopping for beds, they're pretty much all, every single bed is very low. You would like your bed to be below your knee so wherever your knee is, it should be below that. The easiest thing to do is put your mattress on the floor. But oftentimes in Western cultures, it's actually just the opposite. The beds are super high. There's all these blankets and pillows and luxurious treatments on the bed. And this 
produces conceits in the mind. So what you'd like to do is sleep in a low position, and this is going to help you over a consistent long-term period. And it's just one thing that you set up once, and then it, it just works, it just really helps you. Do tasks that you feel that are beneath you. If you feel that washing dishes or cleaning toilets or doing certain tasks around the house are beneath you, be sure that you do those things. Be sure you put the mind in those situations to do those things. We have this saying that, you know, before enlightenment, carry water and chop wood. After enlightenment, carry water and chop wood. And essentially, you know, don't view yourself as being high. Do things that you feel are normal, right? Or if you feel like things are beneath you and there's no way you would pick up a mop or you would sweep a floor or anything like that, do those things. That's really helpful to the mind. Listen to others teach you wisdom without any interest in teaching them anything. What tends to happen is when we're around people and they start sharing things with us, and perhaps that person maybe even has ego, then when there's ego present, right away we want to tell other people all about us because we want to take that position. And then they start taking a higher position and start sharing bigger and badder things about themselves and start being more boastful. And then the mind's conceit wants to be more and more boastful. And it's just this race to the top kind of thing. But in situations where people are sharing something with you, even if you already know that information, even if that's something that you're not even interested in learning, just sitting there and listening and not allowing the mind to be boastful and go over the top of them can be really helpful. You might feel in certain situations where someone's sharing something about themselves that your mind wants to be above them. That's where you've got to cut that off and let it go. Don't allow the mind to crave and yearn to teach other people just because somebody's teaching you something. Just remain humble and just listen. This can be really helpful for you. Washing feet is really impactful to your practice. You can wash your parents' feet, your older brothers and sisters, your family. Some people wash their teachers' feet. This in Thailand is called dum hua. It means like pouring water on your head is what it's called. And what they do is on Mother's Day, on Father's Day, on your birthday, you wash your parents' feet and you wash their hands. Maybe even on New Year's or something like this. Really at any time you can do it. But on some of these major holidays, they will bring this big bowl, they'll put it under your feet, then they'll have this clean water and they'll scoop the water. They'll sometimes put scents or flowers in there and they'll offer their parents like a bouquet of flowers or this garland of flowers. They'll say some nice kind words to their parents. Then they'll pour this water over their hands and over their feet and wash their feet. This is a great way to communicate love and kindness and appreciation, but it's also a way for you to eliminate your ego and your conceit. Because if you're down on the floor washing your parents' feet and being very humble about this, this can really help your mind. So you're not putting yourself below your parents, but you're just choosing to put the mind in a position that's humble so that now when it's doing this, it can just take on this humbleness and see this appreciation and this gratitude that you have for your parents or teachers or people like this that are really meaningful and helpful in your life. You can show respect and gratitude to people with a why. This is called a why when you put your hands together and you bow your head. This is a way to show respect and gratitude to others. 
but it's also a way for you to be humble and cultivate this humbleness in the mind. So here in Thailand, everyone's you know always wanting each other, but I see more and more in the international world that celebrities and other people, when they're receiving awards and things like this, they're using this to thank people in the audience. So there's no reason why you can't use this in all the different places that you go to. When I traveled to America and Egypt recently, I was wanting all the hotel staff and all the students and all the different people, taxi drivers and stuff like this. When I was in Egypt, I would why people and say, Assalamu alaikum. And then they would end up whying me back. And even though it wasn't part of their culture, you know, they were starting to adopt these practices. And this is a way of, again, showing respect and gratitude. And you'll see people will really warm up to that. But it's also a way for you to eliminate any arrogance or conceit by bowing your head. Even when I drive the little motorbike out of our village, there's security people up at the front. I will typically bow my head as I go through the security gate and thanking them for being there, essentially, and and just showing humbleness. You're not putting yourself below people. You're just choosing to practice being humble. And your body position is really important. That's why sleeping on the floor is really helpful. That's why getting down on your knees and washing feet is really helpful. This why and bowing the head is really helpful. And even sitting on the floor. You can sit on the floor and watch TV, allowing other people to sit on the sofa. Not that you're putting yourself below your parents or your grandparents or other people in your home, but you're just choosing to be stable and steady and grounded in order to practice humbleness in your mind and kind of training this mind to be humble. You can practice generosity, loving kindness and compassion with all beings. This really helps to eliminate conceits in the mind by giving and sharing with others, by having this genuine interest in seeing others be well and peaceful and practicing having concern for the misfortune of others. This is really helpful to eliminate conceit. Eliminating judgment with no comparisons that you're superior or inferior. This is the cutting off and letting go where you see the mind wanting to judge other people. Cut that off and let it go. Don't allow the mind to put itself above people or below people. If you see the president of your country as being above you or being above other people, and if there's other jobs that you feel are are low, you need to change your thinking and no longer think that way. That think about these people just performing different roles. The president is performing one role, and these other people in these other jobs are performing another role. Be kind and gentle because it's the right thing to do, not because you expect something from these people, but just choose to be kind and gentle in all situations. This will help with the conceit. Ask others for advice, not just listening to people teach, but also just ask people for advice about what they've learned in their life and just listen without trying to prove anything or without trying to teach them something. Just ask them questions and listen. Help others without any goal or expectation of a return favor or any kind of positive benefit for yourself. So practicing that generosity where you're just giving and sharing of your time, effort, and energy where you perform tasks or you perform certain things for your own mind. So if your neighbors got trash all over their yard, go over there and pick it up and help them. Or if you see somebody struggling with something, you know, practice generosity without any expectation of anything in return. Just help people because they're human beings and you have loving kindness and compassion for them. 
seeking guidance from a teacher, the way that you guys are learning in these classes, the way you ask questions in the Facebook group, the way that you reach out for support and seek personal guidance, this is really helpful to the attainment of enlightenment because you're eliminating conceit. Of course, it's helpful because you're learning the teachings and everybody that is going to get to enlightenment other than a Buddha is going to need to have teachers and guides. But there's a lot of people in the world that are out there trying to get to enlightenment on their own, not realizing that they need a teacher and a guide. They think they can do it themselves. This is because of the arrogance and the conceits and the, also the unknowing of true reality, the lack of wisdom that they can't do it themselves. And oftentimes this is the ego, the arrogance, thinking that I can do it myself. But just by seeking guidance from a teacher, on a certain level, you're admitting to the mind that it doesn't know everything and it needs help in this world. Everything that you've ever learned, essentially, you've learned from a teacher, whether it's reading or writing, whether it's even learning how to urinate and defecate, whether it's learning how to tie your shoes, you've had somebody teach you these things. This path to enlightenment, you need a teacher, of course, because you're not a Buddha, but by seeking guidance from a teacher, this can help the mind to eliminate conceit. There's a lot of people in the world that don't seek guidance from a teacher or aren't interested in seeking guidance from a teacher because there's conceit in the mind. There's arrogance there. And then wherever you see this arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, or comparing arising, then you cut that off and let it go. You apply right mindfulness to observe this arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, and comparing arising, and then you apply right effort to cut that off and let it go. And that will help you to no longer do that. Each time the mind wants to do these things, you yank it back and you yank it back, bringing it to the middle. And then over multiple sessions of learning in classes and personal guidance, seek guidance from a teacher where you see that the mind is being arrogant or prideful or judging or measuring and comparing. Reach out to a teacher and ask for help over multiple sessions to get guidance. Here's some things to look at related to the words of the Buddha where he's talking about this conceit and this arrogance and what we're describing as the ego. He says, gain honor and praise are an obstacle even for an otter hunt. An otter hunt is an enlightened being. Monks, gain honor and praise, I say, are an obstacle even for a monk who has an otter hunt one with taints destroyed. When this was said, the Venerable Ananda asked the Master Teacher Gotama, why, Venerable Sir, are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle even for a monk with taints destroyed? So what the Buddha is saying here so far is this gain, honor, and praise. When somebody's praising you, when there's some kind of gain, when there's some kind of honor, this is an obstacle even for a monk who is an otter hunt one with taints destroyed. This is somebody who's eliminated the 10 fetters. They're an otter hunt. So the Buddha is saying this gain, honor, and praise is an obstacle even for them. So one of his close students, Ananda, says, hold on a second. Why, venerable sir, are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle even for a monk with taints destroyed? Then the Buddha goes on. He says, I do not say, Ananda, that gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind. So gain, honor, and praise aren't an obstacle for somebody who's enlightened and has this unshakable mind, this enlightened mind. But I say, 
they are an obstacle to his attainment of those peaceful dwellings in this very life, which are achieved by one who resides diligent, dedicated, and determined. So dreadful, Ananda, are gain, honor, and praise, so bitter, vile, obstructive, to the achieving of the unsurpassed security from bondage or enlightenment. Therefore, Ananda, you should train yourselves thus. We will abandon the arisen gain, honor, and praise. We will not let the arisen gain, honor, and praise persist obsessing our mind. Thus should you train yourself. So he's not saying that an enlightened being is going to be affected by gain, honor, and praise because their fetters are already destroyed. They have an unshakable mind. Their mind has already been liberated. He's saying that gain, honor, and praise is an obstacle for your attainment of enlightenment. So whenever people are sharing this praise or you're being honored with an award or you're having some gain in your life, something that maybe your income has gone up or you've gotten a higher position at work, don't allow the arrogance to arise in the mind. Don't allow that pride and that boastfulness. Let me plaster all over Facebook how great I am. Don't allow the mind to do that. Cut that off because as long as you allow the mind to do that, it's going to be an obstacle for your attainment of these peaceful dwellings, this peaceful mind that is the enlightened mental state. And then lastly, before I open up to any questions that you guys might have, is it's important that you always and forever develop your practice to eliminate the ego. Never assume that it's been extinguished. What the unenlightened mind wants to do is it wants to think that it's more enlightened than it really is. And that's the ego in there trying to convince you that you're more enlightened so it can stick around longer. So always and forever develop your practice to eliminate the ego. Wherever you see personal existence view or conceit arising, cut it off and let it go. Don't ever assume that it's been gone or that it's extinguished. Just always be diligent and dedicated like the Buddha was sharing to ensure that it's gone and it's eradicated, that it's obliterated because there's a real risk in you convincing the mind that the ego is gone. One of the things that I sometimes do in this class is I ask the students, do you have ego? So th think about that question. Do you have ego? If you answer no, that you don't have ego, you most likely have ego because it's the ego wanting to convince you that you don't have ego so that it can stick around. If somebody asked an enlightened being, do you have ego? They're not going to answer no because that would be the ego wanting to be boastful. Like, no, I don't have ego. Yeah, I don't have ego. If somebody tells you you have ego and you experience painful feelings because of that, that's because of the ego right? So there are some situations that I've been in where I've needed to let students know that, you know, this is your ego, this is your arrogance, and they've gotten painful feelings because of that. But I didn't cause that, right? I'm just helping them as a teacher to let them know that there's still ego present. And then if they're experiencing painful feelings as a result, that's because there is ego there, that craving, desire, attachment, that arrogance, that wanting to be prideful, that wanting to be above others. And then when they hear this disagreeable speech that they have ego, then the mind experiences anger or frustration or some other discontent feeling. So don't convince the mind that it doesn't have ego and just always remain diligent and dedicated to eradicating it wherever you see that it's arising. 
So let me open up to any questions that you guys have in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. There are none on Facebook. Miranda has her hand. Uh -huh, Thank you, Tommy. To go back a little bit, it's understood that being in a low position helps with the ego, and it's clear why that would help with the ego where it's feeling superior to others. What isn't clear yet is why, I know, I understand that it does work, but why does sleeping in a low position help with someone who is experiencing inferior feelings due to ego, sir? Because the same thing that's causing the mind to feel inferior is the same thing that causes it to be superior. So it's the same pollution of mind. It's the conceit. And the conceit is what causes you to judge yourself because the mind is judging others as being higher and you being lower. So what you need to do is just get to a point where the mind is just completely humble, where it's not feeling low, it's not feeling high. So it comes to the middle. So by sleeping in a low position on the floor, the mind can be grounded and humble and in the middle. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Yes, sir. Rick has a question from Facebook, sir. Yes, I have a question from Facebook. Chris Rice uh, writes, could any of the cultural gestures such as bowing be considered virtue signaling? I'm not sure if I sense this based on my being me being arrogant with conceited or if I'm sending, sensing that others are involved in rites and rituals instead of the core teachings. I am more or less sure some of its arrogance and conceit on my part, but is there anything valid to religious customs such as bowing in the Buddhism community or Christians saying, I give all the glory to God, etc.? Not being right action, but just virtue signaling. And he asked three basic questions. One, how can I address any of my wrong views in relation to this? Two, what am I doing wrong? And three, is any of this discernment at all? Or is it just me experiencing invalid aversions? What is virtue signaling? Do you know, Rick? I do not. Okay. I guess I, I, I'm going to assume that it's, oh, look what a good boy am I. Okay. So that's what the ego is going to want to do. If the individual is bowing and saying, look at how great I am because I'm bowing, that's the ego that's doing that. But where you see that occurring, you cut that off and let it go. The reason why you're bowing your head to other people is to show gratitude, to show appreciation, to show respect, and for you to remain humble. So if you're feeling the arising of, oh, look at me, how great I am because I'm bowing to somebody, that's the ego that you're trying to get rid of. So by not doing that, isn't going to eliminate it. So if you're doing that and you observe the arising of ego in that moment, then you've got to do that more and more frequently. And every time that the ego and arrogance is arising is cut it off and let it go. But if you never put the mind in that situation, then the ego isn't going to arise in that situation and you don't get an opportunity to cut it off. So rather than avoiding the situation and not doing it, it's better to put the mind in that situation observe if the ego arises and when it does cut it off and let it go it's kind of like this wild bush that when the wild bush grows you cut it back and when it grows you cut it back 
But if you never put it in a situation where it has an opportunity to grow, then you can't cut it back and you can't cut it back. So eventually, when you do this enough and you start taking on this thinking of I'm doing this to show respect and gratitude and I'm doing this to cultivate my own humbleness, then you've uprooted the conceit that's causing that to arise to be, look at me, how great I am. So when you put the mind in that situation and cut it off over repeated times, then you'll get to a point where this won't arise in the mind and you'll just see it for what it is, which is I'm being respectful and showing appreciation and I'm doing it in order to cultivate my own humbleness. Thank you, sir. There does not seem to be any more questions at this time. All right. So I'll just end by thanking all of you for joining today's class and reminding you that this is going to take some time. Working on personal existence view and conceit, it isn't like the five factors of well-spoken speech where you just learn it and then maybe over the course of a few weeks or a few months, you're able to maybe bring your speech up to that level. Personal existence view and conceit takes quite a while to work on and that's why I teach it here in chapter 16 even though I know that you might not be ready to go out and start working on these things right away, but you can start doing some of these things because it's gonna take such a ongoing and consistent pattern to be able to eradicate these. It's good to start early and that wherever you notice that the mind is judging or measuring or comparing, wherever you see this self-image or self-identity wanting to be projected in the world, cut these things off and let them go and implement some of these other solutions and strategies in order to eliminate them. And then as you need help, reach out and let me know. Because as you eradicate personal existence view, you're going to see that the mind's gonna become more peaceful, that when you hear agreeable or disagreeable things, no longer will you see them as agreeable or disagreeable. It's just somebody saying something and then you'll either thank them and share appreciation or maybe you'll ignore what they say and you won't experience any shaking up of the mind. And when you eliminate this conceit, you'll see that with eliminating personal existence view and conceit, that your personal and professional relationships will really blossom and your mind will be more at ease because you're not putting yourself above and below others. You're not having to judge and take on this burden and all this work to figure out what the pecking order is. What you're trying to do is you're trying to get rid of these animalistic aspects of the unenlightened mind. Even though you're in this human state, the unenlightened mind functions very much like an animal. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get this mind to become more and more human. That's what the path to enlightenment is, is functioning more and more as a human being where you're no longer experiencing these animalistic instincts where the mind is holding on to this animal consciousness from all of our countless rebirths in the animal realm. And the way that you do that is by gaining this wisdom of understanding how these things are impacting your life and then implementing the solutions to eliminate them. And then you can become more and more human and you'll be at ease as you function in personal and professional relationships. So thank you all for joining today's class. In the Wednesday class, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. So you can join for our loving kindness meditation if you like, or on next Sunday, we're going to be doing chapter 17, which is eliminating fears. Are you really scared? So I'm going to help you understand fears and what's causing it and how to eliminate them. It all comes down to craving, desire, attachment. That's what's actually causing the fears. 
But there are certain things that we can do in order to eliminate these fears, which is a little bit different than the things I've taught you already. It's still going to be breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity, but there's some special techniques that we can use in order to eliminate fears from the mind. Because an enlightened being isn't going to have any fear whatsoever, not even a fear of death. So whatever fears that you might have in the mind right now, I'm going to teach you guys how to eliminate those. And you can eliminate them in the way that I'm going to share, including the fear of death. There's ways that you can eliminate the fear of your own death or the fear of other people's death around you, people that maybe the mind is holding on to. So I'll share all of this with you next Sunday. And you can read that chapter in volume one prior to class if you like, and then this way you'll have maybe some questions that you might be interested to ask because asking questions will help you to more deeply understand each chapter. And it also helps me to understand where you are in your practice so that I'm able to help you further as you ask questions. And then, of course, we have our Saturday Polycanon in English study group. If you're ever interested in joining that, you're more than welcome to do that. Some students like to go through the group learning program once or twice before they join the Polycanon in English study group. Some people do both programs at the same time. That's on Saturday, and you're always welcome to join that as well. So I'll see you in either next Wednesday's class or Sunday's class, perhaps Saturday's class, maybe all of these classes. In the meantime, have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.